We're living in a shaken world. In fact, a November 2020 article, just three months ago, written by Brandon Reynolds, published by the University of Chicago, San Francisco, he writes these things. This is how he begins his article. In these uncertain times. When I read that, I thought, has he been listening in on my messages? But then I thought, remember, no, he wrote back in November. In these uncertain times might be the catchphrase right now. From the macro level of the pandemic, climate change, social and political unrest, to the personal level of job uncertainty, illnesses within families, and various levels of social isolation, any and all of these contribute to a sense of uncertainty. But what is uncertainty? He defines it this way. Uncertainty means ambiguity, which means that we have to expend effort in trying to predict what will happen in addition to preparing to deal with all the different outcomes. And the stress of uncertainty, especially when prolonged, is among the most insidious stressors we experience as human beings. And so we continue to focus on where and how you and I as Christians can find hope while we're living in the midst of a very shaken world. A world that is fraught with uncertainty. A world that I shared with you last Sunday, which Mark reminded us of Wednesday night. We're living in a world that is under the control, under the rule of the devil. It's what the Bible says. Now, we know the last chapter of Revelation. And we know that the victory has already been won in the cross, but it's kind of like D-Day. Anybody else historians or love history? I mean, basically all of Europe knew the war was over after D-Day. But peace wasn't proclaimed then. There were some still some battles that had to be done and, and all. And that's the way it is. Christ won the victory at the cross. But the last chapter, Revelation 22, hasn't come yet. And so we continue our examination of the letters of John because it's my belief that John will help us by identifying the many things that we can know. I already shared with you that in just the first letter of John, and he doesn't even use it in the first chapter, by the way, so actually just four chapters of 1 John, he uses the phrase, we know, 14 times in 13 verses. And we want to know, don't we? Because we feel that knowledge somehow gives us control. And yet we feel that things are so out of control. So what should we do when everything feels out of control? Because living with so much uncertainty is hard. As human beings, we crave information about the future in the same way we crave food and other primary needs. And if you don't believe that, 
go somewhere where they leave a copy of the newspaper out and go to the page, I don't even know where it is in the newspapers, I just know it's there, but go to the page where the horoscope is. A lot of times it's easy to find and a lot of times it's not even there. People will tear it out and put it in their pocket because they believe that somehow that's going to be right and it's going to give them a knowledge of the future. Our brains actually perceive ambiguity as a threat. We try, our brains try to protect us by diminishing our ability to focus on anything when that happens other than creating certainty when things are so uncertain. Now last week, I defined for you what uncertainty is. It's what results when, due to the circumstances around us, we experience fear. Fear regarding a variety of unknowns, which we've already identified as pandemic, climate change, social political risk, job uncertainty. Those cause us to experience grief. Because we have a feeling of loss as to what we could have had or what we have actually lost. And added to this is the vast amount of confusion that exists. Not knowing who or knowing what to believe. And it's pushed us to the point that we are in our society, our culture, we are in a trauma. And yet, doesn't the Bible tell us not to fear? I, I haven't counted them, but fear not or some variance literally appears in the Bible. I've heard over 365. Uh, I heard that in a message one time from somebody that I have no reason to, to doubt his sources. And, but his point was, we got for each day of the year, 365 days, there's a verse that says something to the effect of do not fear. And when we hear people pushing the idea of faith over fear, and we should have faith over fear, but what does that mean? I can tell you that faith does not mean the removal of uncertainty in the world in which we live. But sometimes, maybe always, it's most effective not to attempt to create certainty. Even though our brains are rigged to resist uncertainty, we can never really know what the future will bring. What if uncertainty is okay? And in improbable situations like the pandemic, which has massively disrupted our routines, which has utterly destroyed our best laid plans, what if we really need to learn how to live with ambiguity, ambiguity, I'll say it, ambiguity. What if uncertainty is okay? And again, I want to introduce you to this idea that John Mark Comer came up with, uh, that I picked up from a manuscript of one of his sermons. The sermon was titled, Holy Uncertainty. 
What if we need those experiences, those, to use a New Testament biblical phrase, those wilderness experiences? Doesn't it tell us over and over that Jesus went out to a quiet place, a desolate place, a wilderness place to pray, to be alone, to have some solitude? What if we need those experiences, those moments of vagueness, those moments of uncertainty, so that as we pass through those transitional times, those, as I shared with you last week, those liminal stages, those areas that are between where we were and where we are going, where we are struggling to let go and to take hold of the new? What if we need those times to grow? Doesn't James say that you have trials so that you can grow by means of those trials? And I'm not talking just as, as individuals. In fact, let me, let me give you this caveat. Most of the time when I use the word you in church, I'm talking to us as a corporate body of believers. I am not one who stresses anything at all about Christianity in the singular. You can't be a Christian as an individual. Singular. It's not biblical. Because Being a Christian means being a part of the bride of Christ. A group of believers. So when we talk about these things, we need to focus on how we can do this, not just as individuals, but also as a church. So what is the goal that we're to pursue? I think it was defined for us in our verses from last Sunday, verses 3 to 4. John writes that he is proclaiming that he's teaching and preaching so that. That's a purpose statement. Whenever you see so that in the Bible, so that, he says, you may have, first of all, fellowship with us. And he's talking about the fellowship with the called out ones, the church, the body of believers. So that you can have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And then secondly, he says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Fellowship and joy. So here's my question. Are you experiencing what John states is the goal for us to experience? Fellowship and joy. And what's the content that we're to proclaim? Well, that's where our text for today starts. I mean, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you. Here's the content. That we're to proclaim. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And that is a self contained thought. 
having claimed in verses 1 to 4 that he was numbered among the eyewitnesses of the Word of God, of Jesus Christ himself, that we developed last Sunday, and having said that it was the Word of life which he proclaims, John, in this verse, defines the content of his message. And it's this definition that He provides for us, that's the basis for the implications He develops in the next four verses in our text for today. He begins by saying that this message, the one that we heard from Him, that is from Christ, as an eyewitness, this message is that God is light. He's saying that essentially the message that we're to proclaim is about the character of God. John doesn't intend to define what God is in himself in this letter. It's a pastoral letter, not a theological or philosophical treatise. He wants to provide us a basis for how we should be living. And if God is light, John writes, those who truly know God will walk in the light. In fact, having said that God is light, John actually uses a strong double negative to state the same thing, but again in a negative way. In Him there is no darkness at all. And he does this so that he can immediately draw out its everyday practical implications for our lives. And that's the focus of what I want to share today. There are three false, three bogus, or spurious, whatever word you want me to use, there are three claims that are made about those who are opposing the gospel message. And they need to be understood as claims that are diametrically opposed to the message that God is light. Now listen, it would be very easy at this point to start pointing fingers and say, oh yeah, that's, that's the way they are and they are and they are. But, that, but that's not going to help us a bit. These verses in this passage need to speak to us. What is it here in these verses that's going to help us grow? And the first of the bogus claims that John mentions is that there are those who claim to have a relationship with God even though they're not righteous. In verses 6 to 10, there are three conditional sentences in the Greek that are all introduced in a similar way. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. Those are all false claims that John wants us to understand what the truth is regarding that. So let's look at exactly what the first one is and how John answers. 
If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You see, the first of these sentences is claiming to have fellowship with God, yet at the same time walking in darkness. And you know what? It's a claim that we should be familiar with. The claim to know God in a a personal way, to have fellowship with Him, but at the same time to be living in a manner that's directly opposite. A life of disobedience to God's Word. A life in which they're walking in darkness. You don't have to raise your hands. But how many of you have somebody that's very close to you, possibly in your immediate or very closely extended family that says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But if you didn't hear them say that, if you just looked at the way they were living, if you just looked at their habits on Sunday, nothing in their life would say anything about them being a Christian. I know a man who was drawn to tears one day when he was at work and he mentioned his church and the guy that he had worked with for 15 years said, oh, you go to church? I knew there was something different about you. So it was showing in his life, but he had never taken the time to share with that man personally his faith, his belief, his behavior practices. It turns out the other man was a Christian too and felt just as bad that he had not done the same thing in reverse. And you know, there's really no question about what's being referred to by darkness. Paul would write to the Christians in Ephesus, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Paul's pretty clear. But you know, John doesn't pull any punches either. He says, you say that you know God, but have nothing to do. You have no fellowship with other believers. You make no attempt to worship God with His bride, the church. John says, no, no. You don't know God. That's a lie. 
and you're not practicing the truth. What it actually means to walk in light or walk in darkness isn't explained in these letters. But if we go back to John's Gospel, John chapter 3, Jesus says, and this is a judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be, be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen clearly that his works have been carried out in God. Is it unusual? Is it surprising that those establishments that stay open late at night, that serve alcoholic beverages, are not well lit, brightly lit places? You see, what John says in the Gospel suggests that walking in the light involves a willingness to be open toward God and His revelation in Christ. Whereas walking in darkness involves a refusal. refusal. You see, it's not enough to know or to claim to know God. I don't think there's a single demon that would have a problem saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They know that. They always correctly identify who Jesus is. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Two demon-possessed men met Jesus, and they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? No. As Christians, our walk has to match our talk. What we must also do is live the light of the truth. We must put it into practice. We must be avoiding sin. We can't just say that we are a good church. Striving to serve God. Unless we strive to be a good church that is doing good. I think Jesus made it pretty clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Now don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying we're saved by works. We can't do enough good works to earn salvation. But I will stand boldly on both of my feet, firm and ready for the attack, and say, that if we are true believers, it will be demonstrated in our life by the works that we are doing. Nobody should be surprised when we say, I'm a Christian. And that brings us to the second conditional sentence in false claim. It has to do with claiming that sin is not a part of our nature. 
You see, one of the claims of the heretics was it was actually worse than the first stage. Because the first claim at least appeared to concede the existence of sin while denying that it had any effect on their lives. They, oh yeah, we can do this, we can do that because, you know, we, we do believe God and He knows we believe Him so it doesn't matter that much what we do. Yeah, right. But at least they understood that there was sin. This second bogus claim is one that denies the very fact of sin itself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These people cannot benefit from the cleansing effect of the blood of Jesus because they claim to be without sin. And in this sentence, John is talking first of all about sin with a capital S in the singular, however you want to look at it. The concept of sin. And therefore he's referring to that inherited principle of sin or or self-centeredness. Anybody ever define for you sin that you have right in the center of it, the great big capital I between the S and the N? That's what sin is all about. I, me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. It's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 7. That interesting passage where Paul says, the things I'm doing I don't want to be doing and and the things that I'm not doing I should be doing. He's talking about what he refers to as the law of sin. The sin that dwells within him. He says, it's no longer I that do it, but that nature, that principle of sin that's within me. And these opponents that John is addressing are saying that whatever their outward conduct may be, there is no sin inherent in their spiritual nature because why? The sinful nature is of the flesh. And the spiritual nature, that's that's something different. Today, we do the same thing. We deny it by all kinds of labels. Oh, that's not a sin. That's a sickness. And so we limit the responsibility that comes with the choices that are made. In the early 70s, I had the opportunity of meeting and talking and, and spending time with Dr. Carl Menninger. Uh, he was uh, the founder and the head of the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. Wrote a book. The book was titled, Whatever Became of Sin. And as a practicing psychiatrist, he said one of the problems that we are facing in our world today is we are denying the existence of evil, sinful choices and we're just brushing it off saying, well, that's just sin. I mean sickness. In John's day, there were those who believed that their behaviors didn't matter and didn't didn't need to be defined as sin. And John repudiates that claim. In his words, to claim that we have no sin means that we deceive ourselves. 
We are self-deceived rather than deliberate liars. And the truth is not in us. Not only do we fail to live by the truth, verse 6, we try to void, be void of it. And so what is the proper Christian attitude to sin? He says it right there. If we confess our sins, confess our sins, not to deny it, but to admit it. And to be able to receive the forgiveness which God has made possible and promises to us. To forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now in that first phrase, he's talking about how sin is a debt that he remits. In the second phrase, you see they're, they're supporting each other. In the second phrase, he says that it's a stain that he removes from us and he does that because he's said to be both faithful and just. Faithful to his nature and character. You know, the faithfulness of God in Scripture, he's not talking about our faith in God. And that's how it's been wrongly translated in some translations. No, he's talking about the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness to His covenant. God's faithfulness to His promises. God's faithfulness to His pledge. For instance, His pledge of Jeremiah 31-34 where He said, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And so it's not difficult to see why God is said to be faithful in forgiving our sins. The third and final conditional sentence of these verses points to the third false, bogus, spurious claim. It's claiming that we do not sin as a practice. The other was that there's no sin in our nature. The second is that we don't sin as a practice. If we say that we have not sinned, We make Him a liar. Him who? God. We make God a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This third bogus claim is indicated by the words, if we say we have not sinned. And this is the most blatant of the three denials. The false teachers maintained that their superior education, their enlightenment, it rendered them incapable of sinning. But John is as clear about the outbreak of sin in our behavior as he is about its origin in our nature and its consequences in preventing us from having fellowship with God. To say that we have not sinned is neither just to tell a deliberate lie nor to be deluded, but to actually accuse God of lying. To make Him out to be a liar. To reveal clearly that His Word has no place in our lives. 
See, not only do we have the obvious in terms of sin, Romans 3.23, anybody have it memorized? For all have sinned and come fall short or come short of the glory of God. But what about James chapter 4, verse 17? Say, well, I looked at the Ten Commandments and I'm doing okay. I've kept all of them. What about James chapter 4, 17? So whatever, or so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You hear what James is saying? If there's something that you know that you should be doing because it's right and you don't do it, that's a sin. Forget about the list. Or Romans 14.23 For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And John's purpose in writing to us is to prevent sin. Not to condone it. So John begins a new sentence. A new sentence to enlarge on the subject of sin in the Christian. He does it first negatively. I'm writing so that you will not sin. And then positively. But if you do sin. And it's important to hold these two statements in balance. It is possible to be either too lenient or too severe towards sin. We are too lenient when we stress that God's love and His gracious provision for the sinner is just going to forgive all of the sin. That's true. But when that gets exaggerated, what happens is is people start feeling like they can do whatever they want to do. I had some good friends who often would say, because they were Catholic, well, it doesn't matter what we do at the party tonight. We'll go to confession in the morning. So they plan the behavior knowing that they're also going to then plan the demand on God to forgive them. But that's not just a Catholic problem. I know a man who said very blatantly, you know, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it so that I can enjoy life and have fun. And then, before I die, I'll ask God for forgiveness. I hope it works. I hope he doesn't die before he gets that forgiveness, that request out of his mouth. Listen to me. As Christians, we cannot escape the specific command of Jesus to stop sinning. Are you hearing me? John chapter 5, verse 14, he tells the lame man, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. John chapter 8, verse 11, to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
and their commands. We are commanded to not sin. And you know what? We can't use the excuse, well, you know, we're just human. That's a part of our nature. No! You were created in the image of God with the image of God placed within you. And Peter's very clear about it when there are people acting sinfully. He doesn't say, well, they're just humans. He says they're acting like vicious wild animals. Now I find it interesting that this man who Jesus Himself called one of the sons of thunder in His early days of discipleship would become in the end of His life the disciple of love. And I think that's further evidence of the power of Jesus on our life. And this statement's another one of the places in which John says, I write to you. A purpose statement. I write to you so that Why is He writing to us? So that we will not sin. Quit sinning. I was listening to Shane Wood one time at a youth conference speak by means of technology. And he looked out at this group of teenagers and he said, you want to be happy? Quit sinning. Stop it. No excuses. Because as we continue to grow as Christians, we should be weeding out more and more sin out of our lives on a daily basis. Are we ever going to be completely without sin? No. John says if you say you have no sin, you're just a liar. But we should be making that movement toward purity. And you know, this is one of the horrible chapter breaks in the Bible because in chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 which we read John is expounding on the remedy for sin if anybody does sin he says we have a remedy it's the one who speaks in our defense Jesus Christ the righteous he is representing our case before the father as he promised he would do he's our defense attorney And He'll represent us to God not only as we ask for forgiveness, but also when we stand before Him on the day of judgment. And He's qualified to do that. He's qualified to be the propitiation. And that word means something that renders an aggrievance or an offended party some warmth and forgiveness. In other words, Jesus is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's offered Himself on the cross for our sins. Last night I was listening to a message by Francis Chan. And he was talking about a message that he heard the night before. And he said, as I left and I was just, I was just thinking about that message, I couldn't get it off of my mind. Thank you, God, for the cross. Thank you, God, for the cross. Because I couldn't have earned it. I, could, I don't deserve it. 
And he said, I went to bed thinking about that. Actually hoping that I would dream about that blessedness. And he said, I was so thrilled in the morning when I woke up. And the first thought that came to my mind was, thank you God for the cross. Because John is saying that he, Jesus, has offered, he's made the payment to have our sins forgiven. Not only ours, but the whole world. But listen to me. Listen to what He says. We have to accept that payment. It's not a statement about universal salvation. We have to accept that statement. We have to obey His Word. We have to loyally serve Him as our Savior. What was the Great Commission? Matthew 28. As you're going into the whole world, do what? Make disciples. Not converts. He could have used the word converts. And then they could have joined in on what I heard somebody recently talk about is the problem of focusing on butts, bills, and baptism. The number of people in the pews, the number of bills and the money that's coming in, and the number of baptisms. We've got to accept the payment. We've got to obey His Word. We've got to loyally serve Him. Make disciples. Teaching them what? To obey everything I've commanded you. Not to say, well, I know it says that in the Bible, but God's a God of love. So where do we go from here? What should be our focus as we live in the midst of a very shaken world where uncertainty is everywhere? How can we make sure that we too are not walking in darkness? Two things. First of all, we need to examine our claims. Think carefully about what you're saying and what you say you believe especially the false or bogus claims. Because you know what? Lies hold us back. I had a good friend who was on the police department and I had the opportunity to ride with him when I first went on the department for a while. And he did something for which he would not have gotten fired if he'd have told the truth. But he didn't know how to tell the truth. And so he made up a lie. And then he forgot what lie he made and so he told another lie to cover the lie that he made. And he got fired when they found out the truth. He got fired for lying under oath when he was being questioned. Lies hold us back. We need to confess the lies. The lies that we're telling ourselves. We need to reject those lies. And then... We need to replace the lie with God's truth. We need to get into His Word. That's why I hope you all have one of those green folders and you're reading His Word. And then secondly, we've got to embrace our advocate. Jesus Christ. We've got to show Him that we love Him. Because guess what? Think about it. You follow 
who you love. I find myself doing things and when I pause to reflect, I think, man, that's just what my dad would have done. That's how my mom would have done that when I'm in the kitchen cooking and I shoot them out. That's what my grandfather would have said or done. You follow who you love. And if you begin to embrace your advocate, Jesus Christ, and you begin to love Him, it'll make it that much easier to follow Him. Let's pray. Father God, we come today with...